it's not the goal, it's the size of the steps you take towards the goal. And so I think the goal should be huge, but you got to set steps that are smaller. Hello, and welcome to Sharp, the podcast where we help you get a little better at the stuff you have to do, so you can spend more time doing the stuff you want to do. So now, on with the episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 54. It's been a while. It feels like it's been ages. I hope you enjoyed our series on helping you get better for 2019. We are right into 2019 now. And uh, although if you're listening to this in 2027 from the future, there's a message for you at the end of this episode. But right here, right now, it's still 2019. And if you want to get more getting better, then you've come to the right place. In this episode, I was lucky enough to spend some time talking to Laura Gassner-Otting. Now, there is so much in this conversation. Laura's approach to life, her new book. In fact, there's so much stuff, I'm not going to waste any more time doing any more preamble. Let's get into it. Laura is on the line from Boston. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thanks very much. We, so we've had a bit of a preamble conversation and we've both agreed it's cold and miserable. Um, so we are going to be your sunshine generators for this podcast. That's for sure. Well, no pressure. No pressure. How, how, is, how is Boston then? So, we, so we've established it's cold, it's wet. Are you in the city centre or is it busy where you are or quiet? Tell us about Well, I'm just outside. outside of the city. So I'm in a lovely little suburb called Newton, but Newton has about 95,000 people. So you can live on the part of the suburb where I live, which is very, very close to downtown. In fact, you can jog to the, to the, to the, the city limits of Boston, or you can live on the other end of town, in which it means it takes about 15 minutes to get from there to my house and then 15 more minutes to get downtown. So I'm in a suburb, but I am about as close to the city as you possibly can be and still have a backyard. Oh, fantastic. It's nice to get out and about and get a bit of space. And you, and you, by the looks of it, the research I've done from you, you're such an active person anyway. But I can't imagine you ever being cooped up in a room for, a, for more than five minutes. When I was looking at the list of stuff you've done. So you're a speaker, you're an author, you're an instigator, you've worked in the White House, you're a mum, you're a rower, a CEO. Have <laughs> so you really done all that stuff and do that stuff? Well, not at the same time. <laughs> No, of course. <laughs> you know, I have a. I was. I was. Sh- I showed up one morning at the boathouse at four thirty a.m. because that's you know when people row. And a woman uh-huh. on my team turned to me and she said, "Weren't you just in California yesterday?" And I said, "Yes." And she said, "Well, what time zone are you on?" And I said, "Oh, I'm my own time zone." <laughs> I, when I was first dating my husband, he called me my own weather system. So I feel like, oh, you wow. know, I just I'm I am a I am a gravitational force, and I feel like each of us are our own gravitational forces. And sometimes that gravitational force sort of implodes upon itself, and we get kind of stuck. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. we use that energy to sort of move forward in the world and propel others with us through momentum. And I, I think. If if we can learn how to harness and use our powers for good, we can all be our own weather systems and our own time zones. Well, it sounds like you need several time zones in your back pocket with all that kind of stuff that you're doing. Now, given all of that and all of that activity, I've got a really, really important question for you that somehow I've managed to start asking at the front of every interview I do. Have you got socks on? 
I do have socks on. I have the most cozy socks on that have like a little fleece lining inside. And I'm I'm Fantastic. sitting here in my office in front of my fire and I'm looking out over the snow and I am I am I am very happy and cozy right now. What color are your socks? They are navy blue with a little bit of a like an, an isle of white pattern through them. Nice. Yes. Ah, well, the Isle of Wight actually is an island half an hour away from where I am right now. So I'm, there you I'm go. I'm wearing them especially. For, I mean, I picked them out especially for this interview today. I, I was this was oh. this was an intentional sock choice. I have sockitude. Cool. <laughs> I sockitude. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how I've ended up asking that question, but uh, it seems to be a little bit more interesting to people than um, tell me about your room and so on and what's around you. Let's just find out about the socks. So we're recording this in January. The episode, I think, will probably come out end of February, start of March. And at this time of the year, uh, I know that a lot of people are dealing with New Year's resolutions. Have Do you have any? Where do you stand on New Year's resolutions? So, you know, it's interesting that you asked that because I just heard yesterday a report on the radio saying that this is the weekend that people who have New Year's resolutions quit. That this uh, is it, yes. that they've basically gone almost three weeks and they haven't done it and they quit. And this is the week, this is the weekend that the gym's empty and Weight Watchers loses people and all of a sudden, you know, everybody just goes back to their old habits. And I don't, I don't really have New Year's resolutions per se. I think that if you decide I'm going to be a better version of myself today and then tomorrow I'm going to be a better person of myself tomorrow. And, you know, the only person you have to beat is yourself every day. And if one day you don't do that well, if, if you've got this like big heavy resolution, then you, you, you're like disappointing yourself so much. So I, I, I really do believe that, that we can all just decide any day to be better and it doesn't have to be on the new year. Absolutely. Actually, we, we, we're even a bit more strident here at, uh, on Sharp the Podcast because we, we have anti-New Year's resolutions. Because for exactly those same reasons, we believe that actually um, if, you, if you decide you want to do something and there's a good reason to do it, then you should just do it because it's a good thing to do, not because it's the time of year or because everyone else is doing it and so on. And I think I read somewhere that something like 80% of resolutions fail by February. And um, I think people are doing it for the wrong reasons. And, and the last three episodes that we've put out um, before this one goes out are actually um, reruns of episodes we did back in 2017 where we're saying, never mind New Year's resolutions, um, look at your habits, look at your goals, look at your routines, because those are the things, those, that's the key to change, doing stuff regularly um, in a different way. And whether that's starting with baby steps or starting with a big bang, it's about that ongoing lifestyle change as opposed to just doing something because it's the start of the new year. So I'm with you on that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you can't you can't decide to 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 lose like to be less fat by yeah. deciding that you have to decide to today. I'm going to go for a 15 minute walk. Today, I'm not going to have dessert. Right today, I'm going to drink more water or have a salad or like it's it's big changes are made of little steps. And I absolutely I fully believe that if you don't set a goal that is so big that it kind of scares you a little that there's a little bit of bell shaking anxiety involved in it, you haven't set your goal <laughs> big enough. But it's not the goal, it's the size of the steps you take towards the goal. And so I think the goal should be huge, but you got to set steps that are smaller. And these New Year's resolutions, they always seem to be hyperbolic. You know, they seem to Absolutely. be cataclysmic. They seem to be like, my life is going to change completely on January 1st. It's like, no, it's actually not. 
And then you're going to be disappointed on January 2nd. And then you're going to be, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be crying into your soup on January 3rd. And on January 4th, it's full of despair and you start <laughs> eating the natives, you know? So like you, you really, like, I think it's important to say, I'm just going to decide to be better tomorrow about this one thing. And the next day about that one thing. And that's okay. Oh, this is great. So we've got we've got so much in common. We're, we're, we're both in parts of the world that's really cold. You've got Isla White socks on. We both vehemently disagree with New Year's resolutions because they don't really help. Your statement there, you said, be better than yourself. And that's absolutely, that's one of our strap lines that, you know, all, the only person you've got to try and be better than is the person that you were yesterday. And that's our philosophy. So, you know, my dad, my dad grew up um, in, in pretty, uh, uh, modest uh, circumstances in Brooklyn, New York. And uh-huh. he said, he would tell me, he lived in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, and he would say he would walk down to the water every uh, day after school and he would see these fancy boats. And he said, one day I'm going to have one of those fancy boats, right? And so he grows up, he goes to medical school, he becomes a doctor and he, he, he's, a, he's a successful physician and he buys a boat and he takes that boat and he, 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 he yachts it all the way up from Miami where I grew up, all the way up into New York Harbor and he's driving around uh, the, the um, Statue of Liberty and he looks over to his left and he sees somebody with a bigger boat. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> it turns out that there's always going to be someone with a bigger boat. It just, it doesn't matter how successful you are, somebody, there's some is going to be richer or thinner or fancier or younger or whatever it is. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you continue to compare yourself to other people, you, you will find somebody who's better than you. Like you just, you just will, you know, unless you're Usain Bolt and you're the fastest man on the planet, you are, you will find someone who's going to beat you. And so how can you, like, who, who should you be measuring yourself up against? And the only person who makes sense is you because trying to chase somebody who is not even, you know, who is so far out of your league, maybe they're young or they're strong or they're just made of different DNA than you. I mean, no matter, no matter how hard I try, I'm never going to be able to run the marathon as, you know, as fast yeah. as Meb Kaflesi. I mean, it's just never going to happen. Okay. So here's a question for you then, because the purpose of our podcast is to help people get better at the stuff they have to do so they can then spend more time doing the stuff they want to do. What do you want to do? What gets you out of bed? Well, can I address the, can I address the premise of the question first? Sure. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that the question of doing the things we have to do so we can do the things we want to do. Um, I think we have to make sure that the things we have to do are in fact the things we have to do. I think we spend a okay. lot of time doing the things we think we have to do without actually wondering if we do or not. So, so many times we get, we get conscripted into doing things that really aren't that important to us and that we're not important to. The best piece of professional or personal advice I ever got was this. You ready for it? Go for it. You're just not that important. Now, that's kind of a hard thing. That's a hard thing to hear. At the time, I had two young children. They were four and six years old. My company was just about five years old. I was busy working on political campaigns. So, you know, I'm, I'm, my husband had a, has, is, is, um, you know, in the midst of an ascension of a career. So, you know, we're building our family, we're building our careers, we're building our communities, we're, you know, deepening our marriage, all of these things. And I sure felt really important to all these parts of my life. And this woman looked at me and she said, yeah, she said, but, you're really not as important as you think. And if you're so busy trying to be that important to everything you think you have to do, then you're not going to be that, you're not actually going to show up for the things where you really are that important. So every time you get asked to do something, it's not necessarily because we are the most important person. Sometimes it's just because we're the most proximate heartbeat. So I think we have to start thinking like, do I really have to do that? It has to be done. 
but does it have to be done by me? If I say no, if I don't answer that email immediately, if I don't let somebody pick my brain or swing Mm -hmm. by and just, you got a minute for something? Like if I don't give away my gold, then I actually might have time to do more things I want to do or the things that I actually really do have to do and I have to knock out of the park. I like that. So be clear about what you mean by have to do, because actually do I have to do? And you very kindly um, joined in our kind of end of year wrap up episode where you talked about the episode that we'd done before about saying no and why it's important to be able to do that and to, and to do that consciously. I firmly believe that actually it's just taking a second to decide this thing that's in front of me now, is it important? Does it mean something? Is it in my circle of influence? Um, and actually, is it relevant to what I'm doing? And I think we often take stuff on almost, we almost sleepwalking to take in on responsibilities and, and reading that email. And not only do we sleepwalk into it, sometimes we even volunteer for it. So we will yeah. lean over like, oh, well, I could help if you need. It's like, well, yeah, here, here's all the stuff I need you to do. And I, I love saying no. Saying no is one of my favorite things in the world. And it's not because I love saying no. It's because it allows me to say yes more to the stuff that I actually want to do. So in this section, we listen to how Laura describes how she uses her calendar. And I just wanted to jump in here and focus you on this bit because there's some really good stuff in this piece. The three-hour time blocks and how she deals with interruptions. There's real gold in here. And then we get into the detail of Laura's new book. So my January is kind of bizarre because I have this book coming out in April and um, I have a bunch of speaking engagements leading up to it. I have a bunch of media to do. Um, I was on the Today Show last week here, um, which is yeah. which is insane. You know, they call you up on a Thursday. They're like, hey, what are you doing on Tuesday? Can you be here at 30 Rockefeller Plaza to be interviewed on the Today Show? And <laughs> you think to yourself, well, I've never actually done an interview for the book yet, and I've never actually done TV. So sure, why don't I do live national television for my very first foray? <laughs> why not? Um, so I don't really have a typical January day, but I will say that what I try to do in my schedule in general, is I try to block off three hours, three times a week uh, to do writing, um, thinking, uh, speech preparation, speech uh, rehearsal, the sort of the creative, the like big brain, heavy fire burning activity, the stuff where, you know, yeah. you're really at the end of it. You're like, I, I love to form sentences, but my brain is just producing monosyllabic blah at this point. <laughs> and I, I, my calendar generally looks like that every morning, three hours every morning. So I wake up 4.30, 4.45 every morning, go to the boathouse, go to the gym. I get a good, hard, you know, one to two hour workout in. Then I come home, um, I shower quickly over tea. I just go through the email and kind of triage, whatever really has to get done. And then I have these three hour blocks, like I'm a Montessori kid, right? I got three hour work blocks of the, of the, of the Montessori schedule. Um, mm-hmm. And then starting at noon, that's when I'll go out to lunch with a client or um, somebody who needs advice on something or just a social call. And then I've got conference calls the rest of the afternoon until it's time to, to you know, pick up the kids and go back into you know, mom land. And what generally happens in reality is people don't just want to meet in the afternoon. Sometimes they want to meet in the morning. So I try to, as much as I can, absolutely positively keep two of those three-hour blocks on my schedule every single week. And where I can, I try to keep three. I have never 
been able to stick to four or more on a regular basis. And frankly, you know, the meetings are where I make my money. So I, you know, I, I, I need to have some of them, but I try to go through this question of, am I that important? Is it something I really have to say yes to? Am I the one who has to be the person to help? Should, is there somebody else who can be better? And I try to push people off. And here's what happens. If I say to somebody, I would love to meet, I would love to help you with this random problem that you've just dropped in my lap, but I actually don't have time in my schedule for two more weeks. I don't schedule the call for two more weeks. I say, why don't you ping me back in two weeks and let me know if, it's, if you still need me. Yeah, yeah. And usually by the time we get to two weeks, they found their, they've, they've solved the problem elsewhere. And if they really haven't, then at that point, they really need me and I'm useful for them. So it's, a, it, it, it's actually a good use of my time. And so it's a great way to both protect my time, but also to um, weed, out, uh, weed out the people that are just like, I've sent this question to 10 different people and you happen to be the one who replied first. And, and that actually, it's really interesting what you're saying because one of, the, one of the mistakes I think people make is they get really good at managing the minutiae, managing the detail. Uh, I'm a big GTD fan, but I think one of the challenges of, of using David Allen's GTD approach is that it can make you really effective and really efficient at processing stuff but what gtd doesn't do um even when you when you work your way up the horizons it doesn't necessarily link that detailed stuff to the wider horizons the the reason that you're uh, you're here what you're aiming for what the big stuff is and what the vision is and i i don't know if you've read um peter bregman's 18 minutes book have you read that i have not it's really cool because what he does is he helps and i, and I use kind of a mishmash of gtd and peter bregman's piece where um I'm clear about why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm clear about what my vision is. We spend a lot of time and there's a lot of help out there to get good at dealing with the minutiae, but not to help people step back and say, yeah, but what's the point? What's the, where is this all going? Why is, what, why am, why am I working on this? So, so the book you've got coming is called Limitless with a subtitle, how to ignore everybody, carve your own path and live your best life. I hope I've got that right. That's right. Um, why did this book have to be written? What just give us a bit of the backstory as to why you felt the need to write this book? Well, you know, it's actually an interesting story because this this book started off being part of a guidebook series that uh, the publisher of the book asked me to write. And as we were, as I was going through writing this book about purpose, how to do work that matters, he, I called him up one day and I said, "You know, I'm I'm uh, the guidebook format is chapter one problem solution, chapter two problem solution, chapter three problem solution, and on and on. And the idea of finding purpose and feeling like the work that you're doing actually matters doesn't really fit into the guidebook format. And 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 I said, you know, it's it's really not working. I think I'm probably not the right person for you. I'm throwing up the white flag. And he said, you're right. Um, it doesn't work." we're not going to publish it as part of our guidebook series. And I said, oh, wait, but there okay. better be a but coming because I wasn't even planning on writing it. <laughs> and, you know, I'm only like three weeks into this book at this point. And he's like, yeah, but here's the thing. It finally unfettered me. It finally unleashed me to be able to say, here are all the ways that it is so clear to me 
over the course of a 20-year career interviewing leaders in, in major moments of career shift who have been super yeah. successful, but were not necessarily happy. Here are the things that I've seen about the ones who actually were both, who were successful and happy in a way that was tenable so that they could continue to do the good and the hard work that they love that makes them and their communities and their worlds a better place. And so the book is really based on 20 years of studying and 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 observing and recruiting and, and advising leaders in massive amounts of career shift about how to use their work. And it could be people who stay at home. It could be people who volunteer. It's, your work is really any of like the productive time of your day. How do you use that time to actually live the kind of life that you want to create? Which way does it go then? Does it does it help people work on deciding what that focus is, or does it help people um, find the solutions to the fo- to the focus? Well, what I learned over the course of my career was that for people to feel like their work actually is right for them, it actually it has to actually be right for them, and that means that they have to be in consonance. You know, we spend a lot of time code switching between the person we are at work and the person we are at home. And when these two people are fighting with each other, we're we're not happy. When I was when I had first started my my last company, my son was six weeks old, and I was working at home part time, and I was with my son part time. And when I was with the moms, they looked at me like, "Well, you're just somebody who works." And when I was with my work friends, they were like, "Well, you're just a mom." And I really wasn't either person because I couldn't lean into either part of me. And then I was, you know, reading books like Lean In, never telling me you have to lean into like everything and all parts of you all the time and be all things to all people. And it turns out that that's actually not what makes people happy. And in fact, even Sheryl Sandberg's own research about it has shown that after all this leaning in, people, it's not really working and there aren't any more women in the C-suite. And I think it's because we have this one myopic, unflinching definition of success, which is the fastest possible way to the C-suite you know, corner office. And that's not what everybody necessarily wants. I think at every age and at every life stage, we're going to, something different is going to put us in consonance. And what works for me at 25 may not work for me at 45. What works for me at 45 may not work for me at 65. So you've heard the word consonance. And in this next bit, we explore the four C's that form the foundation of Laura's work in Limitless. Calling, connection, contribution, and control. We also discover why following your passion can be bad advice. And so what I learned is that there are really four elements that put people in consonance. The first is calling. So this something, some purpose, something bigger than you that you want to work towards. And we often think about calling and purpose as like higher calling and higher purpose. But the truth is it could be curing cancer. It could be feeding the poor, but it could also be buying a beach house in a Maserati. Mm -hmm. It could be paying off debt. It could be um, a, a brand that you love or a leader who inspires you. It's just something that's bigger than you something that's that you want to get out of bed for. That's the first. Okay. The second is connection. How does the work that you're doing on a daily basis serve that calling? So why do you and the work that you're doing in this box, on this organizational chart, in this company matter? Yeah. The third is contribution. How is the work that you're doing contributing to the life you want to live, the lifestyle that you want to have, or the values that you want to manifest? Is the job, does the job that you have help put you in a trajectory that gets you to where you want to be faster along that route to the calling? And then lastly, control. 
How much control do you have over the connection and the contribution that this work has towards serving that calling? And at every age and life stage, this will be different. So when I was young, 21 years old, working on the on Bill Clinton's first campaign, I had a ton of calling. I mean, that was like all the idealism you could eat. But I was fetching coffee all day long, so I had absolutely no <laughs> connection whatsoever. But then in terms of contribution, I was living my values every day. And if he won, I was going to be working in the White House. And wow, what a career trajectory contribution that would be. Control, I had absolutely zero, but I didn't care. Yeah. So in each and now, you know, now that I'm now that I'm I'm older and I have older parents and younger kids, I'm writing this book and calling it, it it's important to me that I'm doing this thing that's that's bigger than me, but I don't have to be changing the world necessarily right now. I have this thing that I care about. In terms of connection, boy, there are a lot of people in my life who need me. And so if I'm doing a lot of busy work, that's not worth my time. That's not connection. I need a lot of connection. Yeah. Contribution, it matters. I'm up on stage every day. I'm a I'm I'm a, I'm a keynote speaker, I'm an author, I'm a very public person now. So I have to be manifesting, you know, all of this. And then I need a ton of control because I'm an entrepreneur. I want that control. I want to have it and I want to make sure that I I can control how much connection and contribution I have. So the the numbers if you think about a uh, you know if you think about it in terms of a, of a target you've got you know one target for 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 the compulsion how much of each of these things you want and one for the quotient how much of these things you have okay. and if they're aligned you're in consonance and you're limitless but if you if you if you realize that in fact you don't have a lot of calling but boy you really need it that's the thing that you can work on getting more of and each you know for each of the four C's it's the same so that that makes sense um I read and I think I've got this right, that you said that um, following your passion is bad advice. Did I get that right? And, and if so, why do you think that? Well, I think following your passion is the it's 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 the spoken illegitimate sister of the live laugh love tattoo. I think it's the world's worst advice. Okay, and and that's because it's it is it is this advice that has been um, uh, passed along and retweeted and reshared on social media by you know girls with flaxen hair wearing flowered crowns looking into you know over Coachella concerts, and <laughs> and, and 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 here's the thing. You can follow your passion all you want, but it doesn't mean it's going to do anything for you or pay off for you or build a career. You have to expect to invest in your passion. You have to expect to be beaten up by your passion. You have to expect to be gutted by your passion. And 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 it's in the getting back up and serving that passion over and over that you develop hunger and weight and tenacity and speed and grit in a way that makes that passion pay off for you. But just going into the assumption that if you just find your passion, I'm going to go make scented candles for a living or whatever that thing might be, it's not it doesn't it, you can't pay your you can't pay your mortgage with passion. Yeah. So I I want people to find that passion, but I also want them to know that they're going to have to do that that's only that's that that that's the goal, but it's not the roadmap to get there. Um it reminds me of that quote that says find a job you love doing and you never do a day's work in your life and <laughs> i used to, i used to subscribe to that and then you know as you get older you think it's a it's a statement that doesn't really mean anything because actually you know if something's worth doing you've got to work at it that's the whole point if you don't put work into it it has no meaning so this fancy idea that we can just all trip along and be happy because we're doing what we love doing and it really isn't work i think there's a balance and i think there's a, there's a um if you've got clarity around what you're working towards then it might not feel like work, but I guess the challenge is defining work. And and the way I read that statement, work is is um, is a bad thing, but 
clearly it's not. You you talked about um, older entrepreneurs as well and the benefit of older entrepreneurs. Tell me a bit more about that. You know, we think that uh, the typical entrepreneur or even, you know, dot-com entrepreneur is going to be some young kid in a hoodie in his dorm uh-huh. room creating the next Facebook. And in fact, that can't be further from the truth. There there were stu- there are studies that have been done that have shown that the best, the most successful entrepreneurs are actually mid-career individuals, people who are already into their late 30s or in their 40s. And you know, part of that's because they can do a little self-financing to to sort of get started, but more so it's because they know what makes them good. They know when they're in their very best versions of themselves. And also because they they they're not they're not ascribing um negativity to work. So, you know, I love work. Work gives me a great amount of purpose and you know, does it feel like work? Does it not feel like work? I don't know. It feels like something that gives me joy. It feels like something where I am completely aligned and consonant with who I am and when I'm my very best self. If you think about about those moments when you were amazing, right? Like if I were to ask you, tell me about a moment when you were just firing in all cylinders, you were making it rain, you were closing a deal, you were sweeping someone off their feet, you were you were taking care of a loved one in a quiet situation. It can be loud, it can be quiet, but if you were to think about a moment when you were at your very, very best, what kinds of times would you think about? Who would, who were you in those moments? What muscles were you using? What energy were you using? What vocabulary? What was your lexicon? Um, who was around you? Was it loud? Was it quiet? Were you public? Was it private? You know, what, what were you doing in that moment? And that's your, that's your fundamental state of leadership. And we dip into these moments from time to time, whether it's on you know the sporting pitch or in the conference room or in the living room or wherever it is that we are. And when we think it's you know it's 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 happenstance it, it's accidental but if we think about those moments and we write those things down on a piece of paper and you know put them on the lock screen of your phone or on your on your um, on your screensaver on your computer or write them you know on your on your bathroom mirror in the morning so you see it when you're when you're shaving if you think about those moments and you start leaning into those in an intentional way then that actually becomes muscle memory that actually becomes who you are and and if you can find work that allows you to be more of that person all the time, that's when you can become limitless because you really are in consonance. Everything is in alignment. Everything is in flow. Now, this section gets a bit personal. Well, it did for me. We talk about how it can be hard to find the balance between getting consonants and making tough decisions. Does what you do match who you are? And we also discover that your brain is a liar. What what I like about um, about some of what's in the book, and uh, and I've been lucky enough to have a little bit of a sneak peek of some of it, is um, you tell lots of stories. So you talk about Alison Levine's attempts at Everest. Um, Tom Webster, you say that he was unhappy, and he realised his issues were not with his job. His issues were with his personal life. Can you just unpack that a bit? And, Tell us why that's an important story to tell. You know, if, if, if I talked to, I've known Tom for a number of years. He's 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 a dear friend. And when I was writing the book, I posted on Facebook. You know, who do I know who feels like they're inconsonant? So everything mm-hmm. they're inconsonant with their with their work, with their life, with everything is sort of in this great flow. And he wrote back immediately, and he said, "Absolutely, one hundred percent." And when I had the conversation with him, he talked about how he works at this firm where the values of the firm and 
who they are and the the attention that they pay to quality and perfection and detail is exactly okay. in line with who he is. And then he told me a story about how even though that was the case, at a certain point, he didn't like the work and he couldn't figure it out. He couldn't figure why. He just it didn't make any sense. He he traveled a ton and it never really bothered him. And then he would come home and he would start nitpicking around the job a little bit until he yeah. finally realized that it wasn't the job that bothered him. It was actually the home that bothered him. And you know, it's a lot easier to change jobs and change marriages. But when he 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 made the decision, and he had you know a young son at the time, which complicated matters. Mm -hmm. But when he made the decision to 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 divorce his wife, which was incredibly difficult and a decision to remarry a, 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 another lovely dear friend of mine, uh, right. everything sort of locked into place. He became better at his work. He became better you know, with, with his son. He, he became a better friend. He, everything about his life on the outside of work locked into place because he, he realized that, it, that what was making him, uh, what was putting him out of consonance was that he was doing work that reflected the values that he wanted to live in the world, but he wasn't living a life outside that reflected the values that he was actually feeling at work. Yeah. I, having been through that situation myself, um, I can relate to that. And, and certainly on a personal level, um, when you make those tough decisions and, and, you know, you make big change in your life, whatever it is, whether it's relationship change, whether it's uh, lifestyle change, when you make big changes like that, um, the thing I've learned is no matter how painful and difficult it, it is, when you get the other side of it, you have the capacity to become more like the person you wanted to be. And when you look back, you realize that actually it wasn't that person's fault. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't external. I just wasn't being the person I wanted to be and to be able to so step I away from that. And Absolutely. And I talk a lot in the book about being in consonance means that what you do matches who you are. Yeah. And for Tom, you know, the who he was didn't match the what he did. Yes, <laughs> and yeah. so he had to make a decision to change one or the other. And when he was nicking around the edges of, of, of being unhappy about the career, he, he realized that he the reason it wasn't getting fixed, the reason he continued to be unhappy, because that wasn't the part that was out of consonance. And sometimes you do have to make that difficult decision. And 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 it's, you know, we talk a lot about about finding your tribe and having people around you who really support you. I, I talk in my book about finding your family. And when I, when I first had a, a friend of mine uh, do an early read of it, she's like, oh, she's like, there's a typo here. It says family. And I said, no, 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 keep reading. Um, the family are that combination of your friends and your family that make up the people who really support you in your tribe, the ones who are there to, to, to help reflect back to you the goals that you've told them about and how you're, how you're working towards them. So for example, you know, we talked earlier about how you, we have these big goals and then we get stuck in the minutia of like processing all the email. Yeah. If your goals, if you're, if you're, if your big giant hairy goals don't match your to-do list, then you're not going to get those goals done. And if your goals don't match your to-do list and then your to-do list doesn't look anything like, you know, the email box that you're so busy getting down to zero. I mean, I love inbox zero, but if I'm so focused on getting inbox zero, I'm probably not rewriting that talk that I have to share a stage with Malala in April to give, right? I mean, that's going to get in my way. And so, you know, the, 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 it's really important to make sure that those goals 
um, are there and that you have people who are reflecting and holding you accountable for that. And so I think when when Tom, and it sounds like you, made this decision to sort of break all the plates at once, as, as Tom likes to call it, uh, you were able to do in a way where you, 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 were, you now have this sort of supporting cast of people that are in your life and you're in their lives, and together you can all rise each other up. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say are the things that people should be looking out for? What are the roadblocks that, um, that, that would be external indicators to people that um, they need to start to take stock of this kind of stuff? So I think, you know, I, I tell people that, I, that the first thing that, that they need to do is they need to learn to ignore everybody. Um, and and the, the, the first way to do that is to think, you know, my elementary school teacher was probably wrong. Okay. So, you know, we have, I, when I was in fourth grade, my fourth grade teacher said, you know, you're, um, you're really argumentative. Right. <laughs> you, you, you'd be a good lawyer. And so I spent probably the next 15 years of my academic career heading towards law school, thinking that that was the direction that I wanted to go. That's what I needed to do. And it, um, it didn't work. I got to law school and it turned out I actually absolutely hated it. I, I had no interest in it. I didn't want to become a lawyer. I didn't look up to the my 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 uh, my teachers. I wasn't inspired by my 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 co uh, my you know my classmates. Um, and it it just it 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 made no sense. And it wasn't until I thought, hmm, maybe she was wrong. Maybe I actually maybe there's other things I should be doing that I was able to then start thinking about what in fact I did want to do. So I think the okay. first thing is 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 these these labels that we've been given these assignments that we've been given about who we should be and what we should be and how we should be at young yeah. ages which we have taken as 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 identification as definition or they were really nothing more than just throwaway comments and i think it's time that we start treating them as such okay so i think the first thing is to throw off everybody else's labels about what you should do and what you have to do and what you need to do because your idea of success and their idea of success may be completely different. And the only person who gets a vote is you. So that's the that's the first thing. I think the second thing I say in my book is screw the Joneses, right? We spend a ton of time <laughs> looking at other people and comparing ourselves and saying, you know, okay. keeping up with the Joneses and saying, well, you know, I've got to marry the right person and buy the right car and live in the right house and send my kids to the right school and, you know, work the wrong, you know, in, at the right firm and all these things that I have to do because that's what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. But who came up with that? Who decided yeah, yeah, that? Yeah. Like somebody at some point decided that blue was going to be the color of the season and then we all scurry around trying to wear blue. And maybe we don't like blue. <laughs> maybe we like green. And that's okay. So, you know, it's it's so the first thing is to ignore what everybody has said, you know, is what should be right. And then the second is if you've decided that they're not right about what's right for you, then we have to stop the comparison game of comparing ourselves to their definition of success. And so it comes down to deciding, you know, the issue with lean in wasn't Sheryl Sandberg's one way approach to to success. It wasn't how she achieved it, it was how she defined it. And okay. it, it's not like success doesn't have to be the same for everyone. It's not the same cookie cutter model for everybody. And so what success means for you might not be what success means for me, but both mm. of us can feel successful in our own versions of that. Mm. And I think we often make the mistake of transposing onto other people this idea that um, we think they're thinking something about us 
But actually, the only thing we've got to go on that is that little chattery voice in our head that's telling us that other people are thinking X, Y, Z, when in fact, it's, it's all of our own creation. You know, it's interesting. I have a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old, which means that I am square in the middle of middle school and high school, which, you know, <laughs> yeah. is hard and awkward. And you do feel like you have a spotlight on you all the time. And I was trying to explain to my 14-year-old the other day that the way he feels about the fact that everybody is looking at him all the time has how everybody else feels. And if everybody else is so focused on themselves and how everyone else is looking at them, how do they have time to look at you? And the, the logic of that did not quite permeate through the like uh, yeah, prepubescent, yeah. you know, lack of frontal lobe, but we're working on it. It's um it is <laughs> it is it is true that if if you we think that we are defined by our failures and because everybody else is looking at them and staring at them. And the truth is, is that most people are only seeing our successes. We see our own blooper reels and we look at everybody else's finished product on social media and we think they're all perfect and we are imperfect. But the truth is that we shouldn't be judging our, we shouldn't be judging our lives by this. I mean, this is the wrong way to think about it. And I, I don't, have you ever seen, there's a, there's a great podcast or a great uh, TEDx talk uh, by a friend of mine whose name is Jia Zhang. Okay. And it's what he learned from a hundred days of rejection. It is fantastic. He literally intentionally put himself in positions where for a hundred days straight, he would be rejected. So for example, when you go into McDonald's and you get a Big Mac and a, and a, and a, and a cup of soda, you can get refills on the soda, right? You can keep going up, get a refills. But he would go up to the counter and say, I would like my refill on my Big Mac, please. Or he would walk up to random strangers and ask them to borrow $100. Or, you know, things that he was clearly going to get rejected from. And he did it for 100 days in a row. And it's just a fascinating talk about what it feels like to get rejected. And you get to this point and you're like, oh, it actually doesn't hurt that much because nobody really cares. Like Nobody's Absolutely. really paying yeah, that yeah, much attention yeah. to anybody else. Um, and, and, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about what everybody else thinks about us. But, you know, and I say, like, don't give votes to people who shouldn't even have voices. But, you know, that includes the voices in our own heads, too. And they're the loudest. That's the challenge. They are the, they're, <laughs> they're the loudest. And frankly, they're the most wrong. You know, yeah, as absolutely. you mentioned in the beginning, I, I, I do a lot of athletic things. And I'm a rower. And the, the, the thing about rowing is that it is, it is, it is, it is long for suffering, right? There's, there is a lot of suffering in rowing. And you get deep into the pain cave and there's this moment where you think, I'm going to die. Like, this is really terrible. But if I stop, I'm literally going to be ejected out of the boat when this oar comes back and breaks my ribs and I fly into the water and I then drown because I can't swim because I have broken ribs puncturing my lungs, right? So you have to keep going. Um, but your brain is saying, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. And it turns out you don't die. And maybe sometimes you win a medal and your brain is a liar. But if you listen to your brain, your brain hits this wall of, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, because that's how evolution works. Like evolution is there to keep us safe from harm. So every time your body gets into this uncomfortable place and every time your, 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 your emotions get into this uncomfortable place and every time your anxiety and your adrenaline get into this uncomfortable place, your, your brain wants to put the brakes on it. And yes, that stops us from jumping off the cliff sometimes, but it also stops us from getting 10% better because we don't yeah. push our boundaries a little bit. Yeah. I love that. I think that's, uh, I think that's going to be the subtitle of the podcast. Your brain is a liar. <laughs> Your brain is a liar. Oh. You know, I, I'm, I am, 
I am, I've recently become in, enamored by the idea of living on the edge of your incompetence. This is like my okay. new, this is my new thing that I'm all wrapped up around. Um, because again, 14 and 16 year old kids, I go to a lot of parent teacher conferences and parent teacher conferences yeah. are filled with all kinds of, you know, horrible tales of all the things our kids don't know how to do. Uh -huh. But it turns out that that's actually really good news because mm -hmm. as adults, we get Hired, we get paid, we get promoted, we get praised for living in the center of our excellence, for doing the thing that we do really well until such time as we get promoted outside of our ability and then we screw up. But we basically yep. spend our careers doing the same thing over and over again at, you know, as quote unquote professionals at it. And our children spend every day learning something new. Okay. You figured out pre-algebra, it's time for algebra. You figured out algebra, it's time for geometry. You got geometry, mm. it's time for trigonometry. They are constantly living on the edge of their incompetence. And that's why they're growing and their brains are so elastic because they're always learning new things. And we, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that they live in discomfort all the time and we seek out comfort. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of my um, it's one of my five questions I ask myself when I journal at the end of the day. What did I learn? And sometimes it's really hard. You know, you've just done a, You've done a regular day's work. You haven't done anything particularly creative or original, or new or different. Um, and sometimes it's really hard to dig anything. Yeah, but what what did I learn? I, I must have learned somewhere. And I'm I'm confident that asking yourself those questions at the end of each day. Um, start to cause your brain to become elastic and change and start looking out for those things. And I think that's a, that's a virtuous yeah. circle. I think that's absolutely right. In fact, when I sold my last company to the team that helped me build it, I did so because I woke up one day and I realized I hadn't learned anything new in a while. And yeah. you know, asking myself this question, what did I learn today? Coming up with the answer, that's like, well, not a lot. What I learned about myself is that I need to learn things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. caused me to make a major change. And I think that's okay too. So I'm mindful of your time, Laura. I've got um, uh, a few quick fire questions to throw at you if you're, uh, if you're up for a bit of rough yes. and tumble. Um, what are you not good at? Math. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and, and, and question number and dancing. five. Math and dancing. <laughs> math and dancing. <laughs> and, and, math, and doing math while dancing, even worse. I was going to say, visions of you on the dance floor whilst trying to do algebra. Um, <laughs> in, fact, in fact, I will tell you, I gave a talk at Harvard once, and my kids were much younger, and I was telling my then seven-year-old that I was going to do Q&A at the end, and he couldn't understand what Q&A was. And I said, well, they just asked me questions about anything. And he was like, what if they ask you about math? <laughs> it's just so well-known in my house that I'm so bad at math. So math oh, and dancing. <laughs> okay, so on a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? I would say I'm probably a seven. Okay. Why are you a seven? Well, I am just a massive nerd when people get to know me. They look at me and they think I'm all put together, but then they find out that I went to computer sleepaway camp and that I love kung fu movies and then I'm just a massive dork about politics and policy and That's all sorts fantastic. of, you know, I'm like a democracy nerd. I stand in a padded room and talk to myself, so uh, I think I'll probably. Okay, up well, there with that's you. definitely at least an eight. <laughs> <laughs> um, what one thing, if I had a magic wand, and you could get ten percent better at something tomorrow, what one thing would it be? Can I say math again? Uh, no, <laughs> but but that would include percentages, so that's not going to work. Uh, a little bit, I, a little bit better. Uh, can I get taller? I don't want. <laughs> okay, um, if, if that works I, for you. No, I think if, if I think if I think if I could get ten percent better at anything, it would be um I think it would be owning 
the big dreams. You know, I okay. I feel very much like I become confident in things once I start displaying competence in them. Um, okay. But I'm I I love a big adventure. I am turned on by the audacity of the big idea. But yeah. sometimes it's it's sometimes it's hard to just decide and jump in with both feet. You know, I sort of decide okay. and I kind of I peek around the edges and I kind of contain risk and I want to make sure I can do it before I can do it. But I think being I think I think I would get better at being bolder earlier. Okay, fab. And um, what's the worst thing about talking at TED? Um well, it was the very first talk I ever gave, so <laughs> there were a really? lot of terror. Yes, yes. Wow. I had never done it before. I, um, uh, Tamson, who was married to Tom, who I was talking about earlier, uh, mm. invited me to apply. I said, no way ever. And my uh, kid looked at me and said, well, don't you always tell me that you should do scary things? And don't you always mm -hmm. tell me that if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you? And don't you always tell me that life starts on the other th side of the fear? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, so what gives? Wow. Okay. Six weeks later, there I am on the stage, no notes, no net, and go. And so it was fairly terrifying. I think the worst thing about it is that it is it is short, and it is it is um, it is harder to give a short talk than a long talk. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because you tend to embellish, don't you? You say things, and then you think, ah, that didn't land. I'll say some more about this stuff. And then the faces, the people are concentrating and are they concentrating or they're not getting it? I'll say a little bit more about some of this stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. But I will tell you the best thing about it is when you're in this room um, and 2,600 people and massive lights and you, you can't even see people, but all of a sudden you say something that's supposed to be funny and some guy on stage left, left will laugh and you're like, <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> I want more of that. It's like immediately addictive. It's like somebody just shot meth into your arm arms you're just like yes Ooh. <laughs> that that was pretty fun if that was uh, if that was one of your earliest talks you have a commendable use of the pause because that's the thing that people tend to struggle with just stopping and letting the point land it's fab it is so difficult it is it is especially when you're in a silent room and you're just like i just have to trust that this exists, that that this is a dialogue, and their part's just silent, but they're still saying it to themselves. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was really good advice that I, that I got. Okay, one more quick question. Um, it says in your bio you're an instigator. What does that mean? <laughs> that means I'm a very dangerous friend. I have talked people into starting their own companies. I've talked people into losing 100 pounds and running a marathon. I oh talked people into 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 joining me to race tuk-tuks across Sri Lanka. Like it is I am a, I I I I come up with some harebrained ideas, not always 100% thought out. Okay. But generally I know we're going to survive. So I'm I tend to I tend to be a dangerous friend. I instigate. I like that. I like that. And I like the fact that you're really far away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that doesn't matter. I have, my reach is long. <laughs> Social instigator. media helps. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For instigator, read Troublemaker. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Laura, listen, it's been absolutely remarkable speaking to you. Thank you ever so much. I really, really appreciate your time and, uh, and I'm mindful of it. Um, what can you tell our listeners about where they can find you, when your book's coming out? Tell us everything. 
Yes, so your listeners can find me at lauragassneroding.com, or if that's too hard to spell, hey, like hey, heylgo.com will get you to the same place. If they want to take a quiz and see if they are in consonants and figure out how much calling, connection, contribution, and control they want and have in their lives, they can go to limitlessassessment.com, and they'll be able to take a quiz that takes about 10 minutes, um, and they'll be able to see sort of where they land and get some good ideas about how to get more of each of those bits in their lives, if that's what they want to put themselves in consonants become limitless. And then Limitless hits shelves on April 2nd, but is available now uh, for pre-order on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere else you might buy books. Fantastic. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I should be getting my pre-order in. I hope our, uh, our listeners to uh, do the same as well. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you ever so much for spending the time. Thank you. It was great fun. And I hope that uh, I'm sure people have gotten um, an awful lot out of the conversation, both practical stuff, big stuff, small stuff, and navy blue socks. I don't think you can beat it. I think we've covered everything. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Fantastic. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye now. Wow. How much did we cram into those 50 minutes? What a great conversation. I was so grateful that Laura took the time to join us, and I reckon this episode is one that would benefit from maybe two or three listens. There's so much in there. And if after all of that, you want more, then you can watch Laura's TEDx talk. You can connect with her on social media. She is at HeyLGO, H-E-Y-L-G-O, HeyLGO. And of course, you can buy her book, Limitless. And the links to all of that stuff, obviously, will be in our show notes. Blimey. I think I need to sit down after all that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Try taking the 10-minute quiz and then go and grab a copy of Limitless. It's out in April, so you can pre-order it if you're listening to this before April 2019. And of course, if you're listening in the future, you remember I did say there would be a mention for you, um, if you could just park your time machine and go and buy it now because it's available now. So go and grab a copy. As I said... I think there was so much in this podcast, I'm going to go and listen to it again. All the links, resource and articles I've used in this episode will be in the show notes right there on your device. Hopefully you'll find them helpful and useful and hopefully you'll find this whole podcast helpful and useful. I hope you do and I do spend a lot of time and effort making sure it's relevant, helpful and entertaining enough for you to listen to. If you agree and you'd like to show your support, there are several ways you can do it. You could go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating or a great review, which would be fab. Alternatively, you can share the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We are at Sharp Podcast, one word, two Ps. Or you could even show someone how to subscribe on their phone or their device. And finally, on the website, sharppodcast.com, you can leave feedback, subscribe, or go and listen to the archive episodes. I'm off. I hope you're able to find one thing before our next episode that you can do, which will help you get better. And remember, don't waste time comparing yourself to anyone else. The only person you should try to be any better than is the person that you were yesterday. Bye-bye. So what I need to do is step away from my microphone and go and have a look at my computer. And this is the bit now where I go over there and it's like, oh no, <laughs> I didn't press record. <laughs> Did not record. <laughs> if you hear me shouting from the corner of the room, you know why. Just bear with me a second.